This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Amen. So if you are new today or watching for the first time or here for the first time, we've been walking through the book of Isaiah and we are on one of the parts of Isaiah that is, is, is best known today and that's in chapter 53. So we talk about the suffering and victory of Jesus. So this is a prophecy that was written over 700 years before Jesus was even born but as you'll see today, it contains just incredible details of his, his suffering and his victory. So let's look <clears throat> at verses 6 and following. Last week, we looked at the first part of this servant song, which began in 52.13. It runs throughout chapter 53. <clears throat> and so we looked through verse 5 last week. Let's pick it up today at verse 6 of Isaiah 53. If you would follow along in your copy of God's word. The Bible says, We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, Like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. And he will receive the mightiest spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. So Father, as we approach this incredible text, we see so clearly the work of Jesus on our behalf. We pray that you would open the eyes of our our hearts to see the incredible riches of of your love for us that you have shown us through the work of of your son and we pray that you would prepare our our hearts as we take the lord's supper together later in the service and so lord we lift up this time to you work in our hearts by the power of your spirit as we study your word, make it life-changing, we pray, that we might go forth from here as your agents of change. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. 49 years before the birth of Christ, Julius Caesar led an army south from what is now modern-day France, 
and they cross the, the river Rubicon. If you had been an uninformed observer th that day and you saw this army crossing this river, it would have looked perfectly normal. There's nothing particularly logistically difficult about it. It wasn't like the river was a, a raging torrent or something like that. You would have seen this ar army kind of crawl, just crossing this river, which is not you know, particularly wide or deep or anything like that. And it would have looked, it would have looked normal. But there was a lot going on <laughs> because the, the, the Rubicon River formed the border of, of the territory that was controlled by the Roman Senate. And so when Julius Caesar led this army across the Rubicon, essentially what he was doing was declaring war on Rome. So there was more going on than met the eye. About 80 years Later, a man hung on a cross in Jerusalem with two, th two thieves, one on, one on one side, one on the other. And to, to, to many people, it, it looked normal because they were used to crucifixions. The Romans crucified thousands of people. And they always did it publicly. They did it in a public place because they, they wanted the point to be made to others, that if you get out of line, you know, this could be your fate. And so to see people crucified was something that, that people had seen before. And so again, to the, the, the naked eye, Jesus would have just appeared like thousands of others that, that were crucified by the Romans. But there was far, far more going on than met the eye. Jesus never sinned. He was dying for our sins. In fact, he was, he was bearing our sins in his own body as he hung there, paying a, 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 our sin debt, paying, paying a debt that we could have, have never paid, paying it in full. And then he was different from, for another reason. Because after his lifeless body was taken down from the cross and buried in a tomb, he rose from the dead. And Isaiah 53 tells us not only what was happening, but why it was happening. It's significance for us. So what do we see here in Isaiah 53. First of all, we see the guilt of human beings, the guilt of human beings. Let's look at verse six. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Note the inclusiveness of the language here and the word all. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. The Lord has punished him, laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every human being who has ever lived apart from Christ is guilty of sin. And look at the way that sin is characterized in, in verse 5 that we, that, we, that we saw last week. It says that Jesus was pierced because of our rebellion, every single one of us 
has engaged in a monstrous, treasonous revolt against our creator, against the one who gave us life and breath and everything good, every single one of us has engaged in a, in a rebellion against him, treason. Notice the word iniquity here in, in, in verse five, that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. That word iniquity means that we are twisted. It means that we are curved in on ourselves. There is something deeply twisted within each one of us. We're curved in on ourselves. We, we have thought and, and lived as if we are the center of the universe, not God. And then he uses here in verse six this image of sheep straying, a sheep, a sheep wandering off, going, going their own way. That's us. Sin is straying from God. It is doing your own thing, going, going your own way. And we've all done that. And it is stupid. It's irrational. It is not in our best interest. But it is more than that. It is rebellion, revolt against God. It is iniquity. You know, in our culture, we, we're, we're used to hearing sort of the, the when celebrities are embroiled in some scandal or whatever, we've gotten used to hearing the non-apology apology. You know, I deep, I deeply, I deeply regret if my words or actions offended you. You know, I was allowed to believe things that are not true. It's easy to sort of, you know, uh, chuckle at these non-apology apologies. But, but listen, we, we, we do this so often ourselves in our own lives and we talk, about, we talk about our mistakes. We talk about our flaws. We talk about our shortcomings. We don't usually talk about our rebellion and our iniquity, but that's what it is. Old Testament scholar John Oswald says, we typically wish to make light of our, short, our shortcomings, to explain away our mistakes, but God will have none of it. The refusal of humanity to bow to the creator's rule and our insistence on drawing up our own moral codes that pander to our lust are not shortcomings or mistakes. They are the stuff of death and corruption. And unless someone can be found to stand in our place, they will see us impaled on the swords of our own making. But someone has been found. Someone has taken on himself the results of our rebelliousness and given us the keys of the kingdom. That is Jesus. And that's what we see next here. The suffering and death of the servant. Jesus is the servant, the suffering servant in Isaiah's prophecy. Let's take a look at verse 6 again. It says at the end of verse six that the Lord has punished him or the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now in one respect, this is continuing the sense of shock 
that we saw last week in verses four and, and five. You remember we talked last week about the fact that in the ancient world, when, when people had bad things happen to them, it, it was just assumed that this was payback because they had done something wrong, because they had sinned. <laughs> and the irony here is that Jesus was suffering because of sin. But it wasn't his sin. He didn't have any sin. It was for our sin. And, and so, you know, people looked in that culture when they saw someone suffering, they assumed it was because of them. It was because they had done something wrong. And many thought that about Jesus. And so we saw in verse four, you know, that many regarded him as stricken and struck down by God, that it was because of something that he had done. Well, it was because of sin, all right, but not his sin. He had none. It was for ours. And so we saw in verse five, he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. It was about us. It was for us. He was broken and poured out all for love, love for us. Now, we also need to think, though, when we, when we, see, when we see phrases like this, that, you know, the Lord has punished him, laid on him the iniquity of us all. We need to understand this correctly theologically. This is what theologians refer to as penal, uh, pen, penal substitution. The word penal meaning penalty, you know, that, that Jesus is, is he's suffering in our place. He is enduring the penalty for our sins. That, it, that in some sense, God's, God's, he is bearing the righteous wrath of God against sin. But we need to understand what that, what that means and what it, does, what it does not mean. You know, there are some who have said, this, this is like divine child abuse, you know, this is just like a, this is like an, an angry, an angry parent taking, taking out, losing their temper, taking out their, taking out their anger on their, their, their child. Well, there have been some really bad understandings of, of, of what this, of what this is. Um, one misunderstanding has to do with what the wrath of God is all about. Yeah, there, I, I, I've heard of one, one illustration about penal substitution, and this is an example of sort of the bad teaching that I'm talking about. But uh, this, this, this guy was talking to a group of kids one day, and, and, he, and he explained the cross this way. He, he said, it's kind of like, like when you're really mad with your friend, but instead of punching your friend, you punch the locker instead. And that was his explanation of the cross. That is a terrible way to, 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 to construe this. It, it makes it seem like, you know, God is losing his temper. God is losing control. And he just you know, takes it, vents it all out, takes it all out on his son. That is not what this is about. God's wrath is not like human anger. When we think about human anger, anger, we think about a loss of temper, we think about people venting, you know, losing control. That is not God. His, his wrath is not like our wrath. It's not like our anger. God is not 
carried away by his emotions. No, God's wrath is his righteous hatred of evil. It's his, it's his righteous, his righteous revulsion toward all that is, all that is, that, that is, that is, that is evil. And because God is perfectly righteous, God, God cannot wink at evil. He cannot, he cannot sweep it beneath the rug. God is morally obligated to deal with evil and sin. We should understand this because, you know, we expect this even in our own judicial system, right? We expect sin to be dealt with, that sin to be punished. Recently, there was a 90-some-year-old man who was living in Tennessee. He had been living in Tennessee for, for decades. He had been in this country, but it was discovered that this guy had been a, a Nazi guard at a concentration camp during World War II. And he was now in his 90s, but they found it out. They deported him back to Germany, rightly so. Rightly so, because the message was sent. It doesn't matter, if it, even if it's 75 years later, you can hide out all these years, but if we know that you were guilty of this evil, you are going to be held accountable for this. Our judicial system must deal with, 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 with evil. It is right. It is right that that be so. And we expect that. We expect that in our system. So listen, how much more should we expect that a, a righteous God, perfect in righteousness, let me tell you something, God is morally obligated to deal with sin, with evil. He cannot wink at it. He cannot sweep it beneath the rug. It must be dealt with. And he could have just said, you all are the rebels. You deal with it yourselves forever in hell. But, but God so loved the world that he gave his son for us. That brings us to an, another kind of common misunderstanding about penal substitution, and, it's, and that is, it's often spoken of as, as if Jesus had nothing to do with this. Like that Jesus, this was all about, this was totally the Father's decision. Jesus had nothing to do with it. That is just bad Trinitarian teaching. Because Orthodox teaching on the Trinity is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit act with a single divine will. That means that long before Jesus was incarnated, long before he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, that the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit had together in one accord with a single divine will decided that this was how it was going to be done, that Jesus was going to die on the cross for our, for our redemption. So you know, when you see passages like in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays for this cup to pass from him, and he says, not my will, but yours be done. That is Jesus acting in his, his perfectly obedient human nature as a man. 
right? But long before the Garden of Gethsemane, long before the manger in Bethlehem, the, the, the decision for our redemption to be carried out in this way and for Jesus to suffer and die for us on the cross was, was made by the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So listen, Jesus is laying down his life willingly, right? No one is taking it from him. He is laying it, laying it down, uh, down willingly. Um, and, and, so, and, and that leads us to, to, to something else that we see here in verse 7. Let's look at it. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before her shearers. He did not open his mouth. This shows us the quiet dignity of Jesus during his arrest and after his arrest as he was subjected to a a mock trial and, and, and beaten and spat upon and tortured and crucified. There's this quiet dignity throughout, no less than five times in the Gospels, we see that Jesus was silent, that he did not answer. He did not protest what was happening to him because he was determined to follow through for us, for our salvation. And so he doesn't protest. There's this this quiet dignity as this is happening, he's in total control of everything that is going on. Note also here in verse 7 this image of the slaughtered lamb. Like a lamb led to the, the, the slaughter. Now remember that this takes place at Passover. Jesus dies on the cross at Passover. And so all the Passover lambs are being slaughtered. When Jesus gathered his disciples in the upper room for the Last Supper, it is a Passover meal. But then Jesus transforms it. And as he holds up the cup at this Passover meal, he transforms it by saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is dying as the Passover lamb. As, as John says in John 129, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors and it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value it was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And then Revelation 5.9 tells us that one day in the new heaven and earth that angels will bow down and sing before the Lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. Verse 8 tells us something else about the, the, the details of what was, what was happening. It says here in, in verse 8, in the middle of the verse, that he was cut off from the land of the living. Jesus really died. 
He really died. In fact, it was overkill. The Romans were experts at crucifixion. They knew all about killing people. And this was complete overkill when, when his body was taken down from the cross. It was lifeless. Jesus really died. He was really dead. He was buried. And then we get details about the, the burial. Look at verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death. So the Gospels tell us that this, this wealthy, prominent member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, took the, took the lifeless body of Jesus down from the cross, wrapped it in fine linen, and then he laid it in a tomb, a, a brand new tomb that, that, that he had purchased, that Joseph of Arimathea had purchased for himself but he placed the body of Jesus there and then a great stone was rolled in front of the entrance. But death could not keep him. The grave could not hold him. And that's what we see next, the resurrection and victory of the servant. Look at the latter part of verse 10. It says that he will, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished so how would this crucified man see his seed? How would, how would Jesus see the, 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 the seed, the, the children, the new creations in Christ, the men and women and the boys and girls, his seed who were born again to have newness of life because of his sacrifice? How would he see that? Because he was raised. He was raised from the dead. Look at verse 11. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. Now we mentioned last week the, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. And the discovery of the great Isaiah scroll. The oldest, the oldest manuscript of Isaiah by like 1100 years. And and what's remarkable about that is that, you know, when, they, when scholars looked at this incredibly ancient manuscript of Isaiah, what they saw was that the, the other copies of Isaiah that they had were, you know, were remarkably accurate. And there were certain points, though, where the, 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 this, this, this uh, great Isaiah scroll really shed, shed light on certain verses and the beginning of verse 11 is one of them because in the great Isaiah scroll found at the, at, at the Dead Sea, it, it just made this even, even clearer at the beginning of verse 11 that after his anguish, he will see light. He will see the light of life. The light of that first Easter morning as Jesus came out of that tomb. And what are the implications of that for us? Look at the latter part of verse 11. By his knowledge or by his experience, my righteous servant will justify many. That word justify means to declare right, 
to declare that someone is in the right before God. Well, how does that happen? Because of Christ's righteousness. By my, my righteous servant will make many right. Why? Because Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life that none of us could live. And then died the perfectly righteous, atoning death for sinners. Because of that, because he carried our iniquities, my, my righteous servant will make many right. If you are in Christ, that is you. You've been made right, declared righteous, not because of your own righteousness, because of Christ's perfect righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then in verse 12, we see this image of a victory parade that people in the ancient world would have been familiar with. God says, therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. He will receive the, the mighty as spoil because he, he willingly submitted to death. And so the image here is of, is of a victory parade. In, in, in ancient times, when armies conquered, they would come back into the city and they would hold like this huge victory parade. Think about like today when sports teams win or whatever in New York or whatever, they'll have a ticker tape parade. It's kind of like that. Like it was, it was, it was this parade, this, this celebration, but the victorious army would march with the spoils of war that had been won. That's the image here in verse 12, that the, the servant is now victorious and he is, he is coming in this, this victory parade with the, the spoils of victory being displayed. Well, what are his spoils of victory? It's you and me. It's you and me. That the people that he purchased by his own blood that he has redeemed, his victory has become our victory but we lay our crowns down at, at his feet. Again, John Oswald says, this twisted, forgotten, broken man will one day wear the victor's wreath and all the other victors will throw theirs down at his feet. Father, we, we thank you for the incredible good news of the gospel. Lord, we look forward to the day uh, when we can can cast our crowns at the feet of, of Jesus. And so, Lord, we, we remember his finished work on our behalf as we take the Lord's Supper. His body, the bread, his blood, the wine, broken and poured out all for love. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would take us deeper into your love right now as we take the Lord's Supper and make us more passionate about going forth and sharing your love with, with the people around us and to the ends of the earth. Right now, as we just continue to, to bow before the Lord, let's, let's reflect right now. 1 Corinthians 11 says that we should examine ourselves before we we eat the bread and take the, the cup. Are there areas 
in your life that need to be dealt with? Are there sins that need to be repented of? Are there relationships that need to be restored? Let's, let's take a few moments right now of reflection, confession, repentance. Lord, we pray that your spirit would make us deeply aware, all of us, of our own sins. But at the same time, make us deeply aware that Jesus has paid it all. That our sins, past, present, and future, are under his shed blood. And we remember that right now. Lord, we pray that you work in our lives right now during this time. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.